Hello, and welcome to this special edition of the National Association of Pediatric Nurse Practitioners Teams Peds Talk podcast, Focus ED, sponsored by the Pediatric Emergency Care Special Interest Group. Focus ED is a podcast program that offers listeners a unique view into the broad scope of pediatric emergency care by looking at three different emergency care topics from a variety of different vantage points across the care continuum. Our first four-part series delves into the very real dangers of child trafficking. Cassandra Newell, pediatric nurse practitioner at Children's Mercy Kansas City and secretary of the Pediatric Emergency Care Special Interest Group, will be speaking with community-based child trafficking advocates and providers who will share their real-life experiences and offer insights into the role of social media and child exploitation. They will also offer helpful tips for starting human trafficking work group in your area. In our second series, Hillary Baxter, pediatric nurse practitioner at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia and co-chair of the Pediatric Emergency Care Special Interest Group, will be talking with experts in emergency care, adolescent health, respiratory therapy, and toxicology about the unique dangers of vaping in adolescents and e-cigarette and vaping-related lung injury. Our final four-part series, hosted by myself, Nicole Kepke, pediatric nurse practitioner at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia and chair of the Pediatric Emergency Care Special Interest Group, will take an in-depth look at the public health crisis of gun violence in the United States. We will be hearing from violence prevention experts and researchers, as well as frontline clinicians about the unique challenges faced by the victims of gun violence, their families, and the healthcare providers who advocate for their care. Thank you for joining us. This four-part series will cover several different aspects of child trafficking from community child trafficking advocates to providers sharing real experiences and scenarios of child trafficking. One of the episodes will be Russ Tuttle, the president and founder of the Stop Trafficking Project. He will share his perspective and experience on the role of social media in the exploitation of vulnerabilities among children and students. Two episodes will interview two nurses sharing their experiences and discussing real cases of child trafficking. They will also discuss how they developed a human trafficking work group at a pediatric hospital from the ground up and serve as co-leaders. We have been fortunate enough to have the opportunity to interview Allison Phillips, the director of the Human Trafficking Task Force from the Missouri Attorney General's Office that provides her perspective on how human trafficking is addressed on on a statewide level. Sergeant Dan Nash, who leads the Interdiction for the Protection of of Children Human Trafficking Unit for the Missouri State Highway Patrol will share his unique expertise and experience with human trafficking with us. I am your host, Cassandra Newell, a pediatric nurse practitioner. I work in a pediatric emergency department and I'm currently serving as secretary for the National Association of Pediatric Nurse Practitioners, also known as NAPNAP, Pediatric Emergency Care Special Interest Group. And I'm also a a child trafficking advocate for the Alliance for Children in Trafficking, which is a program by NAPNAP Partners for Vulnerable Youth. 
Thank you for listening to the podcast today. Um, I'd like to welcome back our next guest, uh, Heidi Olson and Rachel Whitfield. So Heidi Olson is a certified pediatric nurse. She's a certified pediatric sexual assault nurse examiner and the same program manager at Children's Mercy Kansas City. Since 2019, Heidi's team has identified numerous trafficking victims through the use of an evidence-based screening tool in the emergency department. Heidi also started and co-leads the Human Trafficking Workgroup at Children's Mercy, which aims to increase recognition of victims and provide support for vulnerable kids. Rachel Whitfield is a family nurse practitioner working in the adolescent medicine at Children's Mercy Hospital in Kansas City. Rachel works in both the primary care and residential mental health settings and often encounters vulnerable youth in her practice. Rachel has a particular interest in the recognition and intervention of vulnerable youth in the clinical setting, which is how she got involved in human trafficking work. She also co-founded and co-leads the Human Trafficking Work Group at Children's Mercy, which aims to increase recognition of victims in the healthcare setting and provide support for vulnerable youth in our area. So Heidi and Rachel, thank you both for being um, with us today. And um, so today we're going to be talking about um, just some cases, some case studies of children who are either at risk or um, confirmed to be um, victims of trafficking. And I, I feel like nothing conveys these kinds of situations better um, than, than those kind of firsthand experiences and those stories that we can all learn from. So I really, really appreciate you all being with us today. So um, just to kind of dive in here, um, are there any cases of children that you could share with us that you have seen in your practice that really stand out in your mind who have been identified as being trafficked or at least at high risk for being trafficked? Sure. So I could probably spend the next 12 hours giving you examples. Uh, I mean, which is, is tragic and awful, but I say that just because I guess with a smile and that, that we are seeing these kids all of the time. And I think part of that is because our nurses have been trained and have been using a screening tool. And so that's bringing a lot of indicators of exploitation to life that I don't think normally we would have seen before or asked the right questions. Um, and obviously it's not like, oh, our nurses are the best in the hospital. They know how to do this. They're, we're already dealing with a high risk population. You know, we kind of know that a lot of these kids, they're coming in for a sexual assault disclosure. It's entirely possible. There's also exploitation happening. Um, so I, what I have personally seen over the last few years is you can kind of split exploitation into two categories. So there's one where it's just sort of like your stereotypical trafficking, where like there is a trafficker involved. The kid has all of the signs that you think of associated with trafficking, which would be, you know, be tattoos, multiple STIs, you know, maybe signs of strangulation, physical abuse, you know, things where we think, oh, this, this kid is definitely being trafficked by a violent trafficker. And we do see that. So to give you an example, um, we saw a 16 year old she was in foster care. Um, she met an adult male online. Um, you know, he acted like he was romantically interested, started grooming her. He ended up picking her up from her foster home one night, took her back to his apartment where he brutally sexually assaulted and beat this girl. He drugged her. He took away her phone, her identification. Like she had no way of getting out of there. He was trafficking multiple women out of his apartment. Um, and so he would let adult men in who would, uh, 
sexually assault this girl and give her cash. He said, the trafficker said not to share her age because it was too complicated, you know, AKA she's a minor. Um, and, you know, he would force her to watch violent pornography. There was just a ton of grooming, sexual abuse, horrific exploitation happening to this girl. And that is obviously, you know, clear cut trafficking. There's a trafficker holding this girl against her will. People are paying money to sexually abuse her. Um, she ended up eventually being able to call her dad and he brought her to the hospital. And this girl did have multiple physical injuries. She had chlamydia, you know, obviously a ton of trauma from such a horrific experience. Um, and so that, I think in those cases, we can all agree, yes, this is trafficking 100%. Um, but I think what we're also seeing, which constitutes as, um, you know, commercial sexual exploitation is that there are a lot of a lot of solicitation and offers to pay kids money or things of value online, what's happening online. And I think for a lot of people, they don't recognize it as trafficking. And so those kids aren't gonna have a lot of obvious signs of trafficking yet. Um, so to give you an example, we had an 11 year old recently, she met an adult male online. Um, she ended up going over to his apartment. Her mom couldn't find her anywhere. She ended up finding her using Snap Maps. Um, but initially this little girl said nothing happened. He didn't touch me, nothing, you know, everything is fine. Eventually he ended up confessing to the police that he had raped this 11 year old. And so then she ended up disclosing that yes, in fact he had. Um, and later on, as more information came out, many adult men had been talking to this little girl online saying they would send her money if she would have sex acts with them or send her money if she would send nude photos. That meets the definition of trafficking for a child. If an adult is offering something, offering money or anything of value to a kid in exchange for a sex act, this is exploitation. And so I don't know that a lot of people maybe off the bat would say, oh, this is trafficking. There's no trafficker happening, but we have adults who are wanting to take advantage of a child and want to give her money in exchange for that, which clearly is wrong and is a crime. Um, so that kid, you know, she didn't have a sexually transmitted infection. Actually, she may have now that I think about it, but you know, a lot of those kids may not. She didn't have tattoos. You know, she didn't have signs of strangulation or maybe some of these other signs that we would see with kids who have been trafficked by a trafficker for a while. And then I think sort of the third category we see are kids who are extremely high risk, who maybe aren't being exploited yet, or we think maybe they are, but it hasn't been disclosed that we wanna report those concerns anyway. So Cassandra and I actually had a patient a couple of weeks ago. She was a 13 year old who, would run away for weeks at a time. She would either stay with her boyfriend or stay with like this random 19 year old girl that she had met. It was just, the whole thing was super shady. So we're really concerned about her safety as more and more information came out and we screened her for trafficking. She basically said yes to every question. She um, admitted to dealing drugs, she was 13. She ended up being positive for an STI. She had had multiple sex partners. Um, she wasn't in school anymore. She had bruises all over her body. So we're seeing all of these signs in terms of indicators, physical indicators, um, but she's denying, denying, denying exploitation. And so that's a kid that we also reported as we think there's probably trafficking happening here. She's not saying it. So I think you kind of get these categories where it's, it's clear cut textbook trafficking. You get kids where it's exploitation and it is trafficking, but it doesn't look like sort of the stereotype. And then you get kids where they're denying, but we think there's trafficking happening. And that's kind of what we see all of the time is a combination of those three things. And I, I can definitely kind of add to that, Heidi, is I, I was working in the emergency department that night and um, she was brought in 
by, by her mother. And it was there because of just, I can't handle her, her it's, she has this erratic behavior. She, I, I don't know. I, I think I, I want her tested for drugs and, um, and it was, and she had a history of some mental illness that she was diagnosed for, um, for, uh, uh, and that she, she would always run away and mom could not get her to stay home enough to be able to see the uh, mental health specialist for her mental health diagnosis for treatment. Um, so that was kind of how that visit had started. And then when I was doing my medical screen for her, that's when I, I noticed all of these bruises on her body and um, just started to think of the back of my head when she had told me, especially the runaway behavior. And, um, and then, you know, things started to unfold from there. And then that's when I uh, reached out to um, you, Heidi, our um, SANE provider to say, hey, I, I'm really concerned about this girl for trafficking. And that's when you came in and were able to help me with that. So um, that's kind of how that unfolded. So it wasn't obvious at that point. It was more of her mom's just like, I just can't handle her behavior. And, and that's kind of where it started for me as a, a, a provider in the emergency department. Um, so, yeah. So what do, what do you, do you have anything to share, Rachel? Yeah. So because I'm not in a more acute setting, um, having my history is ER. Uh, and so I totally <laughs> can think back to many stories um, from my ER days where um, there were lots of red flags and things that you guys are describing. From an ambulatory setting, um, it's not as clear cut oftentimes. And so oftentimes it, I, we don't see the acute um, things very often. Typically those go straight to the ER. Every now and then we will and then we have to transfer them to the ER. But ours are generally um, more of these either um, kids who are being trafficked, but it's not recognized as trafficking. It's not that um, clear cut trafficking. Or we have lots of um, youth who are at high, high risk. And so we have to do more intervention of similar to like a domestic violence intervention. So safety planning, educating them on what trafficking is, what it looks like, what to look for, what healthy relationships are, what consent is, all of those things. And also um, just to kind of touch on something that Heidi mentioned about um, the last um, case study that you guys mentioned with um, her selling drugs and thinking about um, trafficking is not always sex trafficking. And sometimes they're um, forced into criminality, forced panhandling or labor trafficking before it goes into sex trafficking. There's almost always some component of that, especially with young people. But just remembering that if they're reporting those things or someone's forcing them to sell something or do something outside of sex, it's trafficking, first of all. But second, it might lead to sex trafficking. So keeping that in mind. I think the case probably that sticks out most for me um, would be a patient that I saw. She was 13 for a physical. Um, so I thought I was going to walk in there and do a run-in-the-mill kind of physical history and physical situation. And so as I started to get into the reproductive health history, she mentioned um, that she was sexually active, um, multiple partners who were older than her. Um, 
But the more I started asking questions, the more I realized um, she had sparked up a friendship with this person who initially was just taking her shopping and buying her things and the newest shoes and clothes and purses and getting her nails done and getting her eyelashes done. And then it went from that, just this very quote, nice person taking her on these shopping trips to, well, if you want me to keep getting your nails done, you have to go into the car and do X, Y, Z with this mail. And so when I kind of dug a little deeper to figure out how she met this person who was taking her shopping and basically grooming her for trafficking, um, she met this person through her father. <laughs> so it was a situation where her father was her trafficker and was grooming her into trafficking. Now this patient was happy, she was sweet, she seemed to be a developmentally appropriate 13 year old until I started asking more questions and developing trust with her um, and a good rapport with her. And so it's it had I had not asked more questions <laughs> and dug a little deeper, I, I wouldn't have gotten that far. Um, and there were no physical signs on her body of trafficking. She had no tattoos, she had no burn marks, she had no bruises. Um, it was really just asking a lot of questions. And uh, the more I talked to her, the more I got to realize like she had plans. They were grooming her to be what's known as the bottom girl, um, for lack of more explicit terms. And so they were teaching her how to bring in her friends and groom her friends. And so they were starting a whole rink with a 13-year-old girl and it was her father who did it. And so um, I think that that was really, I, and I had already started the work group at this point, but that was very eye-opening for me. And when I do presentations, um, actually got this from Heidi, but pulling in pictures of missing and exploited kids um, to remind people that these kids look like kids that we see every single day in our clinical setting, not these kids who are bound up in a dark alley with black eyes. They look like everyday kids. And I was developing a talk for something and I was just going through the missing exploited kids hotline pictures and her picture came up. Oh, and so um, so I, I don't know, you know, where the status of her at this point, but her picture did come up and this was after I had taken care of her. And so, um, and, and just so everyone knows, the FBI was involved. It, every, all the proper steps were taken with her and she still got away and she's still missing and exploited at this point because it's her guardian. And that makes things 10 times more complicated. And so that case will stay with me forever. That, that case was really just um, validation for why I do and why we do what we do. Absolutely, absolutely. Wow, Rachel and Heidi, these are these are really concerning, really concerning cases, and uh, but important that we need to share these and talk about these so we can learn from these and and kind of figure out what we can do um, as providers um, to try to identify and 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 to and to help. Um, so, kind of going into that a little bit more, you know, what methods on identifying warning signs have you found most helpful? Um, I would say for me, um, and I touched on this before, establishing a rapport or, or a trust, um, making sure that they understand that I'm here to help them. I'm not here to judge them. I'm not going to tell them that they made a bad decision or that they're a bad kid because they've done X, Y, and Z, because they probably heard that before. And 
and it goes into that whole culture of victim shaming and, and all of that, but really establishing a safe rapport um, with them before kind of getting into those deeper dive questions. And I do a lot of anticipatory guidance while I'm asking questions. And so my lead into questions is often um, something like, we find that many young people um, are on social media, right? So Snapchat or TikTok. And we're hearing that a lot of people are getting messages from strangers that they don't know, asking them to send pictures or asking them to meet or asking them more personal questions about themselves. Have you ever experienced that? Can you tell me about that? Do you have a friend who's experienced that? How do you feel about that? And so providing some anticipatory guidance while leading into a question and letting them know that the normalizing what they're experiencing of we're, we're hearing that this happens a lot. Have you ever had this happen to you? Tell me about that. Um, and then if they do disclose it, thanking them for trusting you um, with that information and letting them know that they did not do anything wrong and that that person took advantage of them and we are gonna help them um, as much as we possibly can and we are going to um, get them as, to as much safety as we possibly can. Um, I think they're, really have been the most helpful with me. Yeah, I would agree. I try and build rapport and normalize the questions that I'm asking before I just jump in, because of course, we're, if we are trying to identify sexual exploitation, we have to ask questions around sexual activity, like those things going in and that's really where um, some of the indicators are going to come out. Um, and so we do use an evidence-based screening tool. We didn't create it. It was actually created by Jordan Greenbaum. She's a physician in Atlanta and she has a ton of, of wealth of knowledge and experience with um, taking care of kids who have been trafficked. So I highly recommend looking her up if you have more questions about that. But, you know, there's there are indicators that we see, especially in conjunction with each other, but always scream exploitation to me. And so when I have a kid who has a history of multiple STIs, um, that should raise red flags because we see that with trafficking so often. Um, just like all the case studies that I mentioned, I, I think all three of those kids had a positive FTI. And so, you know, and this is an 11 year old, 13 year old, 16 year old, even doesn't matter their age if there's exploitation. Unfortunately, they're being exposed to infections. Um, kids who say they have, multi have had multiple sex partners, especially when they can't consent. So if I have a 12 year old saying to me, yeah, I've had five partners, I instantly start thinking exploitation. Um, kids who run away, that is one of the biggest indicators or kids who are in state custody, especially in state custody and run away. We know those kids are very, very high risk. Um, if they've had encounters with law enforcement. So they have they been arrested for something in the past? Has their family been in trouble um, with law enforcement? Every single kid that we see has a history of childhood sexual abuse. So obviously they're coming in for a complaint of sexual abuse. They typically have already been sexually assaulted, um, typically by someone they know, a family member, a trusted person before. Um, you know, we're seeing them again for exploitation, unfortunately. Um, the thing is with kids is they cannot consent to transactional sex. So again, if we have kids who are homeless saying, yeah, I, you know, give a blowjob to this person so I can stay on their couch, they're being exploited. We see pornography plays a huge role with trafficking today. And so for a lot of kids, pornography is created of them or they send nude photos and then our trafficker turns around and says, well, I'm gonna send these to your parents or to whoever, if you don't have sex with me or this person. Um, we see a lot of traffickers try to get kids hooked on meth. Uh, it's specifically in the Midwest. Um, 
because again, it, it, it makes them dependent on their trafficker. Um, there's, these kids are not gonna be in school typically. And so I think when you start to see those things, say you're assessing a kid who's in for suicidal ideations, but then when you start asking questions, they're not enrolled in school anymore. They've had a history of chlamydia and gonorrhea. You start to sort of see these things and I would start to think something's off here. You know, we need to ask more questions about what's going on. And I would say every kid I've taken care of that is being trafficked, you just get this feeling. I'm sure you both can also uh, reiterate that. It's not scientific, it can't prove it, but it just, something feels off every single time. I like, I like how um, you both had mentioned about just respect and um, respect to that patient and the, and the family. And I like how, um, you know, anytime we can provide any education or anticipatory guidance, I love how you tie that in, um, Rachel, like you said, right into that kind of question. It kind of just paints that into their, their mind and, and, and can, you can get, I feel like a better answer to that question. So I, I think that's a really good, really good tip. And then, um, Heidi at the end, I'm probably going to have you mention again about the uh, resource that you were talking about. So that way our listeners can, um, make sure that they, um, get that resource. Cause that, that'll be really great for them to have. So, um, just, so once we have identified a child who we think is either at high risk for trafficking or maybe is, is being trafficked, you know, what, 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 what do we do next? Um, so we thankfully have a pretty solid algorithm at this point in time, a kind of protocol of what we do. Um, so we just recently started offering a service where if anyone in the children's mercy healthcare system thinks a child's being exploited and they want it to be further assessed by a SANE nurse, we are willing to come in and talk to those kiddos just because it's something that we do all day, every day. Um, and we have access to the screening tool. So that's something we definitely have been doing more and more is going in and, and helping kind of guide, yes, we think this child's being exploited, this is what we do next. So that's kind of step one is, are they identified? And you know, sometimes they don't need us, we, are, we have a provider that's like, clearly this child's being exploited. So we pull in our social workers and that's our first point of contact. Um, of course, social work is going to ask a ton more questions. They're gonna start safety planning and then we report it to several agencies. So Child Protective Services in the state where the child lives. We report it to local law enforcement where we think the trafficking is happening. Sometimes that requires multiple agencies to be involved. I had a kiddo, a 14 year old who was being trafficked one time. She was in a motor vehicle accident. Um, that's what brought her in, but we ended up uh, discovering she was being trafficked. And there were five different law enforcement agencies that were called before we left the ER that night. Um, and then a great partnership we formed, which you guys will hear about in another podcast is with the Missouri State Highway Patrol. So if a kid is being trafficked in Missouri, we call them because they kind of essentially have jurisdiction over the entire state. So they can help other jurisdictions investigate or give them resources or kind of brainstorm with them, which has been really helpful um, because they have a wealth of knowledge related to human trafficking. And then um, we also notify the human trafficking hotline, which is a little redundant because the human trafficking hotline sends it out to all law enforcement agencies who would be involved. But we do that for two reasons. One is that it, they are um, tracking statistics around the United States. So we wanna make sure they have accurate statistics. And we also just wanna make sure if there are other agencies who should be involved, you know, that we didn't miss anything. So 
it's a lot of reporting. We help social work share that burden because that's asking hours of their time um, to do all of that. But we have found it to be so helpful to bring in a huge team to investigate. We have had multiple arrests, confessions, other kids found in trafficking rings or had other like pedophile rings be broken up because of these tips that we have given just, you know, off of a, hey, something doesn't seem right here. Can you guys go investigate? Which is exciting to see. We do live on a state line. So um, with Kansas, it's just a little different in that we bring in the FBI versus the highway patrol. But again, just our being able to work together and communicate a lot better than we were five years ago is really encouraging to see. So that's essentially kind of what happens immediately. And Rachel, what about in your clinic setting? Um, so a lot of times we will we'll pull in um, social work um, and kind of let them take it <laughs> from there. Um, but now that we can call Zane and Heidi's team, our, our, um, our whole building actually has been educated on calling Heidi's team and actually Heidi and her um, partner are gonna come talk to my specific division about kind of what Zane has to offer if we're concerned about trafficking, we have somebody there. Um, but so we basically follow the same protocol that Heidi just mentioned. Um, I will say that it's different everywhere because I think this is a national podcast, right? This is gonna go out, yeah. So it's different everywhere and that's very unfortunate. And so in Missouri, you call the human trafficking hotline and it goes to the Missouri State um, Highway Patrol, right? Um, and they are on it. They, they they have identified this as a priority for them. They are, from what I understand, very passionate. I think he's coming to talk to you guys isn't you for this podcast too. So you'll you can sense the passion when he speaks about it. Other states are not so great about that, and so um, some places you might have to advocate a little bit harder and take matters into your own hands with the reporting um, versus having such a great system, unfortunately. Um, but that is one thing. It wasn't like this when Heidi and I started the work group, right? And so that's something that we've had to kind of push for and advocate for. And um, Heidi has amazing connections within the community being on the forensic side of things um, that has made this happen, but um, it, hasn't, it hasn't always been this way. And so I want to reiterate that because it might feel a little bit overwhelming for people who don't have these systems in place yet. But you know, lots of perseverance and you can get there. <laughs> so if they don't have these, so if our listeners, like you said, they, they're not here um, to be able to, to have these resources, um, maybe they're, you know, what, um, what can they do? So if they are concerned about trafficking, um, even on the community too, you know, we, we see things that, um, you know, we can nurse our nursing kind of insight and sense that that just doesn't seem right or that looks weird or you know what can they do from when you're out in the community or what can they do if they're in a rural setting where they work in a clinic and they just don't have um, these resources. I, I think first and Heidi can probably touch on this a little bit more but what I tell everyone is report it to the hotline. There's a national human trafficking hotline 
until we start reporting, we're not going to, until we recognize it, we're not going to report it. And until we start reporting it, we're not going to get a true idea of what's happening. And if we don't have numbers, there's no money to put towards it to fix it. Right. And so that's always been my stance with people is you have to know what you're looking for, report it regardless. You don't have to confirm it before you report it, report it. Someone will investigate it, hopefully, and then we'll get better numbers about what's happening. Also, most states have a human trafficking task force that includes like their district attorney or attorney general's office, um, the highway patrol or their um, local FBI region office, local police department, all of that. And so most states, I think all states have some type of human trafficking task force. You would probably identify it through the attorney general's office in your state. And so um, reach out to that task force, get active, um, in that task force, if you can't go to the meetings, at least make yourself, identify yourself with the people on that task force, let them know that you're interested or you're passionate about that. Um, or that's, you can also report your concerns there and say, hey, I did report this to the national hotline, but I also wanted to make you aware. I'm concerned about this massage parlor, or I'm concerned about I saw a group of people hanging out at XYZ location. They're there at the same time every single day and they're doing X, Y, and Z and it's concerning to me. Or someone approached my child on the internet or my niece or nephew on the internet and I'm concerned about this. Here's that person's profile information. Here you go. And so um, not only doing the human tracking hotline, but making those local connections that you may have and making sure that you're reporting your concerns to them. Um, I know for me, it's always hard to like fill out an online form and send it off and hope someone does something about it <laughs> without a lot of follow-up and feedback. But the more you do it, the more people realize, okay, they're serious about this and they know what they're talking about. Like they're not reporting, you know, a hostel in some other country. They're, they know what they're looking for and they really have a good grasp of what trafficking is and they'll, they'll keep in touch with you and it just builds. It's like, it just grows and grows and grows. Yeah, I would add in and say, so I think when we first started, we had a little bit of that, a sense of a feeling of like, we are not working together with our multidisciplinary team. And it doesn't really seem like they're super responsive to what we're reporting. Like, what should we do here? And so I think that for me, a lot of it was just meeting like googling or figuring out like who's in charge of this how do I get a hold of them and then saying do you guys do education with your staff about human trafficking if not can we do it how do we work together better and just doing that over and over and over again which would lead to other connections which would lead to other connections which is actually how we started working with the highway patrol is I sat by the director for the attorney general's office before that was her job at a fundraiser for a group that I just wanted to see what they did for trafficking survivors. So, so we sat next together and started talking. She was a professor at UMKC. She did research on trafficking. We both found each other's work fascinating. So we started, you know, can you present at this? Can you present at this thing? Which eventually led to her working for the AG's office. And then she introduced me to the highway patrol. So it wasn't like, you know, it was just being really persistent for a long amount of time saying, these are the needs we have, who can help? can we help you, you know, provide more education to your staff? Can you provide education to ours? And I think in sharing those relationships over the years, it's really improved our response. Um, and I think mutual respect, you know, for different agencies as well. 
but it can be really hard. I mean, there are definitely times I've reported to law enforcement and their response is totally inappropriate because they don't have an understanding of what trafficking is. They had, we had a kid who was, you know, being exploited online and they called it consensual prostitution. She's a child. She can't consent to that. Um, and so we actually pulled in another law enforcement agency and just said, you guys do a really good job at this. Could you maybe like, you know, educate your colleagues? And they were open to that. And that entire department was educated. And so I think uh, being respectful, um, but also, you know, saying, how can I step in and fill this gap, which is hard and we're all busy. Like who has time for this constantly? So I acknowledge that, but I think that's kind of how these things go. It's just slow and steady and it's not gonna happen overnight. But when you do suspect trafficking, it should always be reported. It should always be hotline. It should always be reported to local law enforcement if it's a child, no matter what, even if they don't feel super responsive, like that still needs to happen. And I agree with Rachel, the human trafficking hotline has really improved over the last few years. They will take your report and they will take it seriously. I talk to them almost every week. Um, so they're very knowledgeable and on the ball with stuff. And the other thing I was gonna say about that is if you're out in the public and you think you're witnessing trafficking in the moment, but people have told me tons of stories like, one girl was in a gas station bathroom and a girl handed her a note that said, can you help me? I'm being held against my will. Terrifying. Obviously call 911 in those instances. If it's something that is not emergent, like maybe you just see a massage probably, but you're like, that seems shady that it's open at 3 a.m. Human trafficking hotline for sure. If someone's in imminent danger in front of your eyes, I would say call 911 and hopefully there's some intervention. So um, the response isn't always perfect. It's not even always perfect from the hospital, but those are kind of some pointers on what to do. I think these are very, very, very helpful for, for our listeners. And um, so I, I think this is, this is great advice. So thank you so much. And, you know, I, just to kind of close this off is, you know, as experienced providers that you both are, what would you um, tell, um, especially a beginning, a new nurse practitioner, because, you know, when you first start out in your field, you're just, you have so much that you're still trained to learn and, and you want to do your best. And, you know, what, what do you think that you would tell them, um, that you wish you would have known when you started just about, um, about child trafficking? Um, I think for me, I, a, a couple of things, I wish I had just like one golden thing, um, but there's so many layers, right? And we all start out at different levels. If I had never worked in an emergency department, I don't think I would have known as much about exploitation of people in general, right? Uh, but I think with everything, you kind of have to check your own biases and what your unconscious bias of things are. And so thinking about with people who are in sex work in general, thinking about what led them to that. And so even though something may seem, as I'm speaking for adults right now, but even though something may seem consensual, what has happened to them to lead them to be where they are and thinking about it from that place versus well, they signed up for this, so that happens kind of thing. Cause that was my experience with being an adult same provider sometimes, which was not where I stand on things. So that makes it very hard. But with kids, I think um, thinking, refraining things from, oh, typical teenage behavior, right? So this is what teenagers do or teenagers make risky decisions or 
you know, they're just a, a bad kid and how could they do this? Or they're addicted to drugs and that's what's leading them to this. But really approaching things from checking your own bias and all, we always talk about trauma-informed things. And so approaching your patient from a trauma-informed place as a child and thinking about what they've experienced, but also approaching their, their guardians and their parents from a trauma-informed place when you can, because oftentimes these are patterns and these are things that happen to the parent too. And so number one, they might feel like it's okay because it happened to them um, and they think that's just normal and that's what happens. But also the parent might not be at a place mentally where they can really address the needs of the child to even recognize that their kid's at risk for something and this is happening to their kid because they're, they've experienced so much trauma. And so I think um, keeping those things in mind are really, really, really important when even opening up your mind to allow yourself to recognize trafficking for what it what it truly is, not what the media would make you believe that it is. And so um, I think Heidi can attest to this too. We hit a lot of resistance um, in trafficking, like with the whole consensual prostitution of a minor, that that's not a thing. And so um, really reframing what you think is normal, what you think as prostitution, um, or stripping of minors, things like that, reframing that into what it truly is and allowing yourself to really realign your thought process or what you've been taught um, throughout your life and your healthcare training. So really long answer to a short question. <laughs> Very important one. I, I think that is so true about knowing your biases and, and, and not being um, judgmental you know, really, yeah, I think that's a very important message. So very, very well said. Heidi, yeah. what do you think? No, I completely agree. I think that's so important. Along those lines, I would say go with your guts. And so I remember as a brand new nurse, I worked at a county hospital on the New Mexico, Mexico border. And I'm sure that I saw human trafficking all of the time. I did not know it. And I specifically can think of a 17 year old that it just like makes me sick to my stomach to this day that we saw who was pregnant by her mom's boyfriend. You know, he had sexually assaulted her. Um, and there was just so, so, so many risk factors with this kid. I'm certain she was being trafficked. Now, at the time, she was just like the big story in our break room, you know, like, oh, have you taken care of the kid with pneumonia that's pregnant that it was her mom's boyfriend and mom flipped out when she, you know, just kind of this big gossip fest between all the nurses because it was this very sensationalized, like, oh my gosh, this is crazy. And it's like, I think deep down something was nagging in me, like something's not right. Like this, something doesn't seem right, but I don't know what to do. I don't know how to assess it. I don't know how to talk to her. I don't know what resources to pull in. I'm brand new at this job. Everybody else seems to think that this is fine or whatever. And I just look back at that with so much regret on multiple levels, you know, that we weren't respectful to that. We didn't dig deeper. You know, we, I think had this judgmental perspective versus saying this kid is a victim of multiple <laughs> crimes and, you know, there's exploitation going on. And so I think had I listened to that more, I think, and been willing to just say, I know I'm the newbie here, but something isn't right. Like, is there more we can do for her? I, I so regret that. And so 
um, I would say, even if it just, if people dismiss you or kind of feel like you're being paranoid or whatever, like listen to that, you have that feeling for a reason. So I think, yeah, I think, I think that's a great message for, for our listeners and definitely a takeaway today is, you know, you have your education, you have your training, but there is something to be said about that little spidey sense in yourself and that gut feeling and to, um, you know, to definitely identify that and to, to act on that. Um, like you said, is just even contacting the human trafficking hotline definitely. And, you know, just saying that this is the scenario, this is what's going on. And, and this is what I'm concerned about. Um, so I, I think that, I think that that's, you know, there's nothing to be said for that, that if you feel it, then I think the right thing to do is to act on it for sure. So that's great advice, both of you. Um, so I just wanted to say thank you, you know, so much for sharing, um, so that our listeners can learn about the warning signs and just high risk behaviors concerning for human trafficking on this episode today. And you are definitely both, um, experts in our field and your field and just advocates for children. And, um, I just thank you so much for all the work that you're doing and it's hard work, very hard work. Like you said, you just keep building and building and building and keep trying to make those connections. Like you said, just among the healthcare providers that we work with and our team that we work with, with social work and all the different aspects, but also outside of that as well. So like you said, law enforcement and um, the state and, you know, trying to advocate and and bring more um, education and information back to where we can help this, um, help this problem of, of, uh, human trafficking. So thank you both so much for being on today. Thank you very much. Yeah. Thanks for having us. You've been listening to focus ED, a special edition of the national association of pediatric nurse practitioners, team peds talks podcast series sponsored by the pediatric emergency care, special interest group. I hope you enjoyed this podcast and will join us again soon.